What's up, you guys? Happy birthday, Abraham Lincoln. On this date in 1809, February 12th, 1809, Abe Lincoln was born. And I am doing this podcast on February 12th, 2022. Had Lincoln lived, he would be 213 years old. And so for this podcast, we're going to celebrate his awesome life by focusing on two of his best speeches that he ever gave, Second Inaugural and the Gettysburg Address. Now, you could literally write whole books on each one of these speeches. You could um, have whole classes on this. And I'm not going to do justice to either of them in uh, this particular podcast, but I didn't want to read them because I think it tells us something about why we all love Abraham Lincoln. And if you think about it, why do we love Abe Lincoln so much? Um, it's kind of counterintuitive. Some people would say because he led our country through the um, Civil War. Some people would say that it was because he freed the slaves. He was actually that great. But think about it as a politician, why is Abe Lincoln number one? He beats Reagan, he beats Kennedy, he beats FDR, he beats George Washington. Everyone nearly universally rates him as number one. And why is that the case? Because if you think about it, he is kind of awkward. He wasn't that handsome. He kind of was a, he was a pretty successful lawyer, but he really wasn't that um, successful politically before he became president. Um, because he, you wouldn't think he would be this rock star, but yet we all love him. We still study him, him. We still celebrate his life. We still read his books. We still research him. We still make pilgrimages to um, Springfield, Missouri uh, to see his house where he was born. We love to quote his speeches, his poetries, um, his wisdom. And it doesn't really make sense because he kind of was this awkward guy. I mean, you think about like Michael Jordan, like we know why we like Michael Jordan. He was a great athlete, charismatic, very handsome. You know why you like Mike. You know why we, we know why we like Tom Brady. Great athlete, handsome, good looking. But why the hell do we like Abraham Lincoln? And why do we love him? Why why is he number one? Well, and I think you can't answer all those questions in a podcast. And I have no how long how how long this podcast is going to be. But I think we can get a glimpse of why we love Lincoln so much through two of these great speeches that he gave um, during the course of his presidency. Um, one, the Gettysburg Address was done smack dab during the Civil War. And the other one, the second inaugural, um, was done just before he died, March 4th of 1865. Um, he was felled by an assassin's bullet a little over a month later. And as we know, um, he then entered from uh, the, the mere mortal realm to basically a god um, in our American firmament. But I think these speeches teach us about why we love him so much. So, and then we'll get into a little bit about, you know, the critics of, of Lincoln and we'll respond a little bit, um, but I'm going to explain why I love him so much. In particular, I love Abe and I love, um, I love Lincoln and I love U.S. Grant, the general. Um, they're, they're basically my top two in American history, Abe Lincoln and U.S. Grant, number one, number two. I think I probably like U.S. Grant even better than Lincoln, but I love them both. And the reason why I love them both is that both of them were distilled action. 
They didn't talk a lot, but the words that they said really mattered. They had this sort of innate wisdom to them in which they were always focused on what mattered. They let go of what didn't matter. They both grew from very humble origins. They have deep roots in the um, in essentially the lower Midwest, you know, with Illinois and Ohio. And they just they just resonate me, with me for so many reasons. But why? Um, because they actually moved the ball forward in racial justice. And they did more than almost anyone else in our country to really advance that ball. I'd say the only one that really rivals them was Martin Luther King Jr. And of course, he was a great American as well. But these speeches really tell us um, why. And I think they give us a glimpse into why we love him so much. And to some degree, I'm just going to I'm just going to read a portion of them, and then I'm going to riff on why uh, on why he's so freaking awesome. So let's set the stage for the second inaugural. This was a speech that was given a little over um, in in the first part of his term, obviously to get, bring in a second term as president, and the Civil War was about to become to an end. And, you know, the question is, is what did it all mean? Because when he gave the first inaugural speech in 1861, no one knew how bad the war was going to be. I mean, most people thought the Civil War was going to be over in an instant and that the South would be crushed and that they didn't have any chance of winning. And that, you know, once the, the might of the Northern military would um, be mobilized, the South would crumble and it would essentially be a cakewalk. Although there's obviously some anxiety. I mean, they knew there was going to be some bloodshed, but there wasn't really going to be a cakewalk. And Lincoln, uh, you know, it wasn't a cakewalk. It was one of the bloodiest battles and bloodiest wars in the history of our country um, in terms of casualties, in terms of brother fighting against brother, in terms of the stakes, in terms of the moral, moral justice reason for the war was slavery and such a poor reason to fight for freedom that basically enslave others in the South. And so Lincoln gives a speech after he had won, and his victory was not inevitable, basically sum up what it means and to give some moral clarity and moral purpose to the war because so many people had died. And the question was, did they die in vain? Was it just going to be that we were all going to get back together and then we were just going to be one country again where it really didn't matter? And Lincoln, when you read the second inaugural, and I'm going to quote a portion of it, really illustrates why we all have this huge admiration for Lincoln and why the critics can go, you know, frankly, they can go fuck themselves because Lincoln is tops. You know, I know I shouldn't swear, but just critics of Abe Lincoln, not, not a fan, not a fan. We'll get into a little bit of that, but, you know, not a fan. Um, so let's, let's so, so he gives a speech. And the thing, Lincoln, I think, wrote nearly all of his speeches. And so these, these are his words. And so what I love about Lincoln, and Grant had this characteristic too, one kind of interesting type of person that I really love is I love nice guy badasses. I got a friend named Dave, and he's like an English major, but he's a total badass. He'd want this guy in a bar fight because he happened to be a US Marine. So he looks like a choir boy, but he'll kick your ass. And that's the way Lincoln was. Now, I don't know whether Lincoln um, could actually get into a fight, but he's kind of like, he had, he had shared one very similar um, 
characteristic with U.S. Grant, which was he did not like conflict. He did not like war and he did not bloodshed. He did not like bloodshed. Okay. But, but if the cause was unjust and if there was a bully on the other side, you better watch out because he's going to go for your throat and he's going to kick your ass because he knows what the stakes are and he knows evil is evil and he doesn't want to fight. But if you want to fight South, you are going down. And as long as it takes forever, because keep in mind, what was the South hoping for? Okay. Not that they would win. They were never, ever going to be able to win the war. They knew that. Why did, why did Lee try to invade the North in 1863? He didn't think he could win. He didn't think he had conquered the North. But what he, what he hoped to do was to be able to rattle the uh, North just enough that they were going to lose hope, that their knees were going to buckle, and they were going to give up, that there would essentially be a stalemate, they would sue for peace. And there was an enormous amount of pressure in 1863, 1864, um, to essentially sue for peace and say this bloodshed is not worth it, and neither side can win, it's a stalemate. And that's really what kept the South fighting, is that the, fight, the South fought that ultimately, you know, uh, the people in the North were kind of soft and they're kind of equivalent to sort of weak-kneed liberals, which is they kind of would talk a good game, but when push come to shove, their knees were gonna buckle and they were gonna give up. And that the South thought they were tougher. But look at what Lincoln does in March 4th of 1865. Not a very long speech, it's a really short speech. But he basically says that we are going to be in this as long as it takes. So we don't want conflict, but we're going to kick your ass as long as you want to keep slavery, because that's what this is about. And we are going to stamp it out. We're going to exterminate you. And we want peace. But if you keep fighting, you're going to be crushed. So listen to what he says one of the concluding paragraphs, the penultimate paragraph of the second, second inaugural. And hostilities are still occurring, by the way. And we'll set the stage a little bit for that. March 4th of 1865. The war is not won yet. But, he, but we pretty much know we're going to win the war unless, you know, they, they, they can keep on with sort of a, a, such a guerrilla type warfare. But he says, finally, do we hope Fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. We don't want war, he says, is basically what we, we want it to go. We don't want it to come. Yet, if God wills that it will continue until all the wealth piled by the bomb, bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. And until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So what he is saying is, is that, listen here, self, 
if you think that we are going to give up until slavery is stamped out, you are wrong. And hell hath no fury like a country united to exterminate slavery with all of its evil until every drop of blood is, is drawn. So he is saying God now has decided that we will be in this as long as it takes, however it takes, until every drop of blood drawn with the last shall be paid, shall be paid by another drawn with the sword as was said 3,000 years ago. So it still must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This, my friends, is toughness. This, my friends, is why we love Abraham Lincoln, because he was tough and he was a leader and he was a reluctant warrior. In some respects, I can almost do a whole podcast on tough guy, nice guys, tough guy, nice guys, U.S. Grant, Abraham Lincoln, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Admiral Chester Nimitz, Colin Powell. Colin Powell was, he kind of believed in this theory too, which was, you don't like war. He was in Vietnam. But if you're going to do Gulf War I, there's a bad guy on the other side. You're going to kick ass until it's done and you're going to do the job right. You're going to put the throat on the foot on the throat and not stop. And here I would sort of digress. What really united U.S. Grant and Lincoln is that they both had this bond, that they both were total fighters when they needed to be. Because Lincoln was, uh, Lincoln was frustrated by, he had these generals that were kind of, they were kind of, they were weak-kneed, or they always made excuses, right? And there's the scene between Lincoln and Grant later in the war, once, the, once Lincoln realizes that Grant's a fighter and that he is not going to give up until the war is done. He said that, um, Grant says something along the lines to Lincoln that um, I'm going to be like a bulldog till the end of the war and I'm going to bite and, until it basically the thing I'm trying to stop is dead. And Lincoln is like, hell yeah. He responds in, in, in essentially a letter back to him saying, yeah, bite on to that, that dog and don't stop until the damn thing is dead. And so what I love about this is they realized war was bad. They realized slavery was evil, but they realized the people on the other side weren't going to stop. And they were hoping to prey upon the fears of, um, of the United States that they would essentially lose faith and that they would lose confidence. And isn't this a good lesson in life that so much of life is is losing faith you know there's that famous biblical story of peter walking on water and doing amazing incredible things until he starts to experience doubt and then he starts sinking right and jesus is like hey keep the faith and lincoln you know i think was i don't think he was atheist i don't think he was like the jesus was a j christian either um but i think he just loved the old testament because of its beautiful imagery and he also recognized the power of the Bible as one of the greatest sources of literature of all time. And he's basically saying, I mean, those have to be probably one, it's probably one of the most beautiful statements I think I've ever read. Let me read it again so you can just sort of soak this up. 
this is after he says, finally do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. But then he says, quote, yet, comma, if God wills that it shall continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. And until that statement, so what is he saying? He's saying all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk. He's saying that the wealth of the United States was created by slavery. The wealth of the United States, the contributions of African-Americans is central to the greatness of this country. He recognizes that as a white person, that it was their unrequited toil that created this wealth and that was expropriated from them. But he says, we're willing to put all those chips on the table to stop this scourge and spend every cent, every penny. You know, as Kennedy said in his famous first inaugural speech, we shall bear any burden, pay any price for the source of freedom, for the cause of freedom against then the Soviet Union. But then he gets absolutely Old Testament and he says, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by, by another drawn with the sword. So what he is saying is, He's feeling, you know, there's this, there's this scene, Cloud Atlas, have you guys ever seen the movie Cloud Atlas? It was a bomb. And it was by essentially the Wachowski siblings, whatever they're called now. They used to be the Wachowski brothers until one of them got a sex change, but whatever, that's a separate topic. They became the Wachowski siblings. I thought this movie was gonna, it, I loved it. It had Tom Hanks, it had Halle Berry. It had like six different stories that totally bombed at the movie. No one gave a shit about this movie. They hated it. But I loved it. And you know what the absolute best part of that movie was? Is I identified with this idealistic lawyer. Um, you, know, I, I, you know, I've struggled with the practice of law. Um, but one thing I love about the practice of law, I think every lawyer, this is why if they're really honest with themselves, one of the reasons why they get into law school, not everyone, someone say they do it, but they just end up for the money. Um, but it's because you want to fight for a just cause. There's that scene where one of them get an idealistic young lawyer um, hears a whip and a lash in Cloud Atlas. And it's this amazing movie, which if you ever get to see it, watch this scene. Six different vignettes, and it's weaved together into one super story. But in some respects, I think that's why it failed. It was just too much for one movie. But he hears the lash, it's in like some tropical island, and he sees and he goes over and sees what's going on and sees the slave being beaten and whipped. And he makes eye contact with the slave. He sees the suffering and he identifies and he recognizes that shared humanity. And he feels it. And so what he's doing here is he's communicating 
to African Americans and to white people as well, that every drop of blood that was drawn with the last shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. That is to say that those bonds and those debts and those sacrifices that they made to make this country rich will be repaid. And they will be repaid with freedom. And we will join them and we will fight for them. And we will put every penny that we have to stamp it out and to fight for it. And then he says, until another drawn with a sword, as was 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous together, that those debts shall be paid, and that God wills it, and that God is on our side, and the forces of creation are on our side. And there's another one, I believe, in the audience listening to that speech, that was John Wilkes Booth. And this explains why he was so enraged, because he knew he had a cold-blooded killer on the other side. And what happens with cowards when they're faced with a stud like Lincoln? They get afraid. The Southerners were, it wasn't just revenge. They were afraid of this guy because he was powerful. He was badass. He was not going to give up. And they knew they had a real man on the other side that was not going to be weak kneed that was undergirded by the faith of the Lord and that was going to do everything it took to crush slavery. But then in the next paragraph, having established his, bath, his credentials, but he says, let us remember, and this is where we start again, with malice towards none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive to finish the work that we are done to bind up the nation's wounds to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do which all may achieve and cherish a just and last a peace among ourselves and with all nations. Malice towards none with charity for all. So even though he is basically saying, don't mess with us, He's saying that once you seek forgiveness, just like the Lord, you will be forgiven. And we will bind up our nation's wounds. And we will think about that, what he's doing. Talk about the amazing grace. One of the best um, songs ever written, that even the slaveholder can be forgiven for his sins. And here I'm going to go into a little bit of a, of a confession in terms of two critiques what I think modern liberalism, and, and before you get too worked up about this, any discussion of a political label is always going to involve to some degree a, a, a vast oversimplification and a departure from the law. So I admit that that's what I'm doing um, before we get into these sort of two things, but there's probably two things that, um, that just drive me nuts about a lot of modern liberalism, especially as it relates to what goes on on the college campus. The first is the critique of the people that try to attack Lincoln as if you know, he was some sort of closeted racist and that all he really did um, was, you know, I don't know, he did free the slaves, but didn't really, you know, he, he just sort of did because it was convenient so he could further exploit people in capitalism and there wasn't any moral justification. And usually what they'll do is 
is these professors will cherry pick a comment that he made during one of the debates. I think there's a sort of a statement that Lincoln made saying that don't mistake that the black person, I think he used the word Negro, which was the time of the, um, which was said at the time, uh, is my equal. I don't claim that he is. Uh, and there were some other statements where you know, he wanted, at some point he had this plan where he was trying to, he wanted to deport them to Africa and return them and recolonize them. So th there were some jarring statements that he had made. But, you know, the, the critic here, and this is one of the reasons why so few professors, I think, have ever really changed the world, is that it's so easy to be um, the critic sitting on the sidelines. Even Bill Clinton, one of the phrases I love for him, those that sit on the sidelines, sucking on lemons, criticizing others, were offering those solutions of their own. So many professors do that. So many people on the campus do that. So many intellectuals do that. So many Democrats do that, damn it. You guys do. You do, right? Because you criticize other people for not paying 15 bucks an hour. You don't realize how hard it is to pay a wage. You don't realize how hard it is to build a business. You don't realize how, it is to, how hard it is to fight a war, to keep stability, to deal with dangerous people. All you offer is critiques and you, you don't offer any solutions and you're not willing to go into the arena yourself and fight. You know, one of the greatest phrases that I like is from Mike Tyson, in which he says, everyone has a plan until they go into the ring and get punched in the mouth. And it's difficult when you're in the arena. There's that famous Teddy Roosevelt phrase that, you know, the, basically something along the lines of, you know, those that are outside of the arena and they'll neither victory nor defeat and they just sit in the, the sidelines. Yeah, I'm butchering the phrase, but you get the point. There's a man in the arena and the woman in the arena, people that are actually out there fighting, trying to make things work. You know, so many Dems and so many liberals, it's like they're the people when you're trying to row across the ocean and it's hard and it's difficult, it's complicated, it's dangerous and it's risky. And all they do is tell you about what you need to do. They offer nothing about how to do it. And they offer you nothing about willing to do it themselves. So the number of people that I've had that have been in government employment their whole life and lecture other people about the minimum wage don't know what the hell they're talking about. They've never created a business. Not, none of them. A lot of them are fat. They're out of shape. They don't do anything. So I think this is really the key to understanding Lincoln. Lincoln is trying to get elected. He is trying to win. He is trying to advance the ball. And he's not just talking. A lot of the abolitionists were, were you, know, you know, William Lloyd Garrison, the famous guy, I think like 1835, 1836, you know, was saying that he was going to publish his newspaper. And there's a, there's a role for the polemicists, the written polemicists. You know, the but the abolitionists went through crap. Very few of them ever got elected. They provided some of the moral justification for the war. But for the most part, they didn't get it done. It was these quiet, tough guys, U.S. Grant and Abraham Lincoln, that won. Lincoln won, and he had the wisdom to make sure that Grant was in power. And he didn't get himself sidetracked because the racial the politics of the time were complicated. And sometimes he had to make compromises. Sometimes he had to say things that he didn't necessarily believe in um, to get elected. That's the name of the game, people is that sometimes you have to make tactical decisions in order to be able to win. And he did that. And what do we know? That once he was elected, that is what precipitated the South withdrawing from the Union. They were terrified of this guy. 
even though his, his position at the time, because he was a lawyer, was that he wanted to save the union up and above saving slavery. That was his original position. And it was legal in the states. He believed it was protected by the Constitution. He did not have the power to abolish slavery, so even if he wanted to. So his argument was, we're not going to expand the slave power. We're not going to interfere where it exists. That was his policy. But yet when he was elected, he actually, they were so terrified of him that he was that that they started withdrawing because they knew that it was the death of their civilization because they needed the lash and unrequited or uncompensated toil for their civilization to exist. And Lincoln was the one to be able to do that. And he did it. And he was in the arena. And he knew when he was inaugurated in 1861, he knew that he was the subject of constant assassination threats. And yet he had this kind of peace and tranquility knowing that he was on the right side of history. But then what did he also do in here? I mean, again, when I think of the people that you know, each century has one or two transcendent figures in our own century, I think one of them is Nelson Mandela. Very similar in the sense that Nelson was like, while we're in the battle, we're, we're in it to win, we're gonna be tough. But as soon as we win, we're gonna forgive um, the whites that oppressed us. And we're gonna forgive them even though they don't deserve it. Um, but what he says is, is that even though we're on the battlefield, if you're gonna seek this unjust cause, we will have malice towards none with charity for all with the firmness in the right as God gives it to see the right. Let us strive to finish the work we are to bind up the nation's wounds. So having established that he will pay any price, bear any burden to crush slavery, we will also forgive. And this is the second thing that drives me absolutely nuts about modern liberalism in particular. And why I think that's why I think it has become so toxic and antithetical to growth as a country. Um, and that not only is it um, something that will uh, not advance a country, but it will actively diminish it which is, is there is a need for accountability when people have done something bad in the past. Absolutely, there's a need to hold them accountable for their sins. I'm accountable, you're accountable, we're all accountable for the mistakes that we've made in the past. But this notion that uh, for people that have made a mistake and that have done wrong in the past and maybe said inappropriate things, the question when, when that happens is, much like the slave owner or the slaveholder, um, not that they didn't do evil, they unquestionably did, but if they confessed their evil and they confessed their sins, they would be forgiven. And they would have the opportunity for perpetual renewal. And that's one of the reasons why I love Christianity. A lot of faith traditions embrace this as well. But there is this notion that yes, we are sinful and that we pay the, pay the price for those sins, yet we are forgiven by our creator, even though we don't deserve it. Isn't that just an incredibly inspiring framework? The fact that we can be forgiven for things that we did that were wrong and that we can be washed away, those sins can be washed away. And so many liberals say one bad thing and you should be totally removed, you should be canceled, you should be you know, humiliated, you should be called out. And the same people that call out they don't do anything. They may read a book. They may, I don't know what the hell they do. They're online. 
You know, there's one guy I know in Iowa City, he doesn't do anything except bitch about school board stuff. He's pathetic. And he doesn't do anything. All he does is negativity and vile, right? So um, I think that's, that's what I, I don't like. And I think Lincoln really counsels us today. And I think that's why we all love Lincoln so much is that, um, is that he recognized that even as to slaveholders, if they were gonna be evil and engage in act of evil, well, then they would be met with the righteousness of, of God. And that those um, drops of blood paid for by the slave would be would be repaid in full plus interest with the sword, but that if they sought forgiveness and reconciliation and healing, they would be just like uh, the the author of Amazing Grace. That they would be forgiven, they'd be recognized as countrymen, and they would be allowed the opportunity to participate again in renewal. And unfortunately, because of this badass named Abraham Lincoln. The um, you know, and, and he caused so much fear with these evil people that he was killed, and that as a result of that, the second part of the Civil War, which was Reconstruction 1865 to 1877, uh, America really lost that war. Unfortunately, the South won Civil War Part Two. So, you know, we always see about Civil War Part One, 1861 to 1865, the North won that, the South won Part Two, they got back into the Union. They developed an essential strategy to dis disenfranchise a lot of Blacks, keep them out of power, and they essentially adopted a strategy of a checkmate. They couldn't necessarily win, but they acted as a block and they acted as a perpetual checkmate. And they rewrote history. They talked about how the U.S. grant was just this incompetent hack. Um, and unfortunately, they won that part too. So here we are dealing with a sort of toxic racial situation, which um, we, much more does remain to be done, but not because of Lincoln set us up perfectly for that. And so did Grant. Keep in mind what U.S. Grant did at Appomattox after he beat Lee. Um, on the battlefield, Grant um, won Appomattox. He basically checkmated Lee. He had him boxed in. Lee knew he was going to lose. So he essentially made a promise that, you know, one of the terms was, is that, you know, if Lee surrendered, the South would be... Um, parole, they'd be able to keep their firearm, the individual soldiers, they would have their horse and they could go back to planting. And as long as they um, abided by the terms of that parole, that was essentially the term in the battlefield where they didn't take them into custody. As long as they honored that, they'd be, they'd be able to remain outside and they wouldn't engage in hostilities. They would be, be allowed to do what they needed to do. And Grant was the same way. I mean, total crush on the battlefield. But then once you lost, he was very forgiving and he never sought revenge. And I think this notion of seeking revenge rather than reconciliation. Once Nelson Mandela, once he won the apartheid struggle, did he seek revenge? No, he held accountability. What was the aspect of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was so powerful is that yes, you would be forgiven, but you had to confess, you had to come clean and you had to know what the facts were. That was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was find out the truth and reconcile after that truth was occurred in the form of a confession. So this is why we love Lincoln. Um, and we love him because he did what he needed to do to secure the freedom that we all enjoy even today. And I was going to do a um, second discussion of um, the Gettysburg Address, but I think I'm probably going to do a part two 
because that's probably going to be like another hour. A lot of you are like, oh my God, I can't wait that long. It's way too long. Plus, I'm going to probably go back and do another episode on Jason Fung, like his take from Lincoln to Jason Fung. You know, I got a little ADHD, I think. And, um, you know, but it's my podcast. If it's your problem, you're listening this far, that's on you. But I do want to finish up my podcast on Jason Fung and some of the take homes there. Um, we are going to do a part two on the Gettysburg Address. We'll talk a little about Edward Everett, who is kind of a man after my own heart. You know, Lincoln gives this world-renowned speech for two minutes. And Edward Everett had spoken for like two hours and no one remembers what the hell Edward Everett said. I'm kind of an Edward Everett guy that I can't speak for two minutes. Some of you say that my podcast is too unstructured and that I need to have more focus. Well, yeah, yeah, you know, well, tough. I mean, if you're listening this far, you like it, you're being entertained. So, um, but we're going to get into the Gettysburg Address, why that was so freaking awesome, what the stakes were there. And who knows, maybe this will evolve into a separate podcast on the Civil War. I do have a major, major man crush on U.S. Grant. I got a major man crush on Abraham Lincoln. And I am in Lincoln and Grant territory. I'm close to Galena, I'm close to um, Springfield. And so I, I may make a separate podcast. If you're interested in that, email me at rockandcoal at gmail.com or rockandcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your comments. But yeah, happy birthday, Abe Lincoln. Badass of all badasses. Um, yeah, and you know what? I, I really don't embrace this sort of bleeding heart liberalism anymore. I think a lot of it's total bullshit. And because it's all words and no do, and it's all complaint with no action. It's all external solution rather than internal accountability. And I think that's my, that's my concern with it. So if you don't like that, tough. Um, this is me. This is who I am. This is how I feel. And I love Abe Lincoln. And I love Abe Lincoln because like so many other people, is that he matched his deeds with his words and his words were carefully chosen, but the words meant something and the stakes were never higher. And he delivered African-Americans from bondage and recognized how evil it was because he connected with them emotionally. And, and I think that as a country, if they can get through the civil war, we can get through this, but we need toughness, we need action, we need deeds, we need solutions rather than just critique. Abraham Lincoln, the second inaugural, one of the best speeches ever given. I hope you get a chance to just read it, read it out loud. Happy birthday, Abraham Lincoln. He would have been 213 years old today. Um, there were people when my dad was born, check this stuff out. My dad was born in 1934. There were people that had witnessed the assassination that were still alive. How cool is that? Um, so it wasn't that long ago, and I think we need to remember what, what it is that made him so magnetic and so trend, just amazing uh, for this great country of ours to survive as long as it has, because it is one of the greatest experiments even yet in human history, that can we, people of common origin, make a country and run it and be successful in doing so. And Abraham Lincoln was one of the key pieces to bind our country together as a member of the National Union Party. Yeah, not a Republican, not a Republican. We'll do a separate one on that, the National Union Party. Maybe we need a new National Union Party. But yes, infinite gratitude to each and every one of you if you stayed in for this podcast this long. Please continue to share the words of the Rocky Cast to everyone that you know. Um, you know, share positive reviews on Apple, Spotify, all places where podcasts are heard. There's a cacophony of voices out there 
in the podcast space, the fact that you've chosen to spend your time with me, I am astounded. All 10 of you, now there's more than 10. We're, we're growing our audience, but it's still a small, a small, tiny, but mighty group of fellow collaborators. Now, if there's any other topics that you want me to cover, I'd love to do that. Um, you and I are going to co-create good content together, and we're going to do great things together, building this little community of ours that follow, you know, whatever the hell that I'm interested in, fasting, stoicism, liberal arts, Abe Lincoln, U.S. Granite, we're going to cover it all on the Rapidcast. And for the next episode, we're going to focus on Jason Funk, and we're going to do part two on the Gettysburg Address. We're going to have a lot of fun. Just continue to stay tuned to these episodes of the Rapidcast, infinite gratitude. And so until next time, you and I spend time together on the Rockney cast. <laughs>